Shabbat Shalom. It's uh, truly good to be with you. Um, the Feast of Freedom this year probably meant more to me than it has in a few years, having been thrown in COVID jail in Israel, and uh, because of that, missed being with you for a couple different uh, experiences, the Oklahoma City Seder and uh, speaking here on Shabbat. So it's, when I say it's good to be here, I really mean it. Because uh, no matter how nice the hotel, when you can't leave, it's still kind of a prison. So anyway, Shabbat Shalom, glad that you are here with us today. Um, you know, last Sunday, uh, my wife and I had a, kind of an interesting privilege of attending the Draper Park Christian Church in South Oklahoma City for our time of celebrating and remembering the resurrection of the Messiah on the Feast of Firstfruits. Now, it's, it was special for several reasons, but uh, one of those is that Draper Park Christian Church is the church that Tanya and I both grew up in, where my father had served as a minister for over 35 years. So there's a lot of nostalgia, a lot of relationships. It was, it was just kind of a good time, kind of a homecoming. But this year had another interesting element to it. Uh, about a month and a half ago, two months ago, my nephew, Justin Avery, uh, became the preaching minister of that congregation. So it's really cool because now my, my father, uh, his grandfather, is able to get back to church and there in the pulpit is his grandson. So that's kind of cool. But there's something you need to know about the Avery family dynamic um, because of what I'm about to do. And you just need to understand it's very difficult for me. The best way I can explain it is just to uh, illustrate it for you. Um, back in the summer, Tanya and I went to Colorado for a week. But the week prior to our going to Colorado, Justin and his father and brothers and wives and their whole side of the family had gone to Colorado a week ahead of us. And so they came home, and then we took our turn, and we went up to Colorado. And something happened that has, in all the years I've been going to Colorado, has never happened. I actually saw a live moose. Now, I've been going to Colorado since I was a kid. I've never seen a live wild moose. So I immediately started taking pictures of it. Now, we have purchased for my father what's called a grand pad, which is like a iPad for senior adults, simplifies everything, keeps him from getting uh, viruses and all that. And we can download pictures, uh, you know, the family, so that he can see them and he can kind of participate and it's not hard for him to be involved. The minute I posted the picture of the moose, instantly there were like three or four other posts from the, my other family, that's my family, of the moose they had seen. And I thought, okay, here we go. So then I posted a picture of Tanya and I interacting with some chipmunks. And instantly, boom, 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 boom. They all started posting their pictures of chipmunks. You see, the week before, they had pre-decided as a family, wicked and evil as they are, that as soon as we posted any picture, they would one-up us. This is the family dynamic that you have to understand. I told my wife, I said, look what they're doing. And then I prayed, God, just let me see a bear. If I could just see a bear, I would win this thing hands down, but I was not worthy. Although he had a... My, Nephew Justin had one ready to go uh, had I done that. So you have to understand that dynamic makes what I'm about to say kind of tough on me. 
because we're so busy one-upping each other, it's hard for me to admit that my nephew Justin really had a great message last Sunday. I mean, it was interesting. And an interesting, a good message for me is something that makes me want to go dive into the scripture, to go look at something. Wow, it opens new vistas and makes me want to study more. And Justin's message on Resurrection Sunday was one of those messages, and I, I begrudgingly give him credit for it, in piquing my interest so much that I literally had to change the message I was going to preach today because I had to dive into this study. I love God's word. I believe it was Chuck Missler was the first person I ever heard refer to the Bible as an integrated messaging system. Meaning that while the stories we read in the text of scripture can stand alone for education and information and inspiration, they are a part of a bigger divinely organized method of revelation whereby God intricately connects multiple things to make the message stand out that much more powerful. Justin's message sent me looking deeper into a topic that I had not previously explored the role of one of Yeshua's chosen 12 apostles. A man who is highly esteemed in the Eastern Orthodox churches of the world, but is sadly mislabeled for one moment of doubt in his life by those of us in the Western church. So I come to ask you to consider that maybe we need to take a second look at this chosen apostle of the Lamb. What if we have completely missed the point of the whole Thomas narrative? What if this man we label as the doubter was actually the man who should be remembered as the one who taught us what it meant to be decisive in our faith? And just one more question for your heart and mind to chew on this morning. Which moment of your life would you like to be the one by which you are labeled for years to come? Will you pray with me? Abba Father, thank you for allowing us to be here in this house of worship. Thank you for Timber Creek for opening its doors and allowing us to uh, come and have church on Saturday and to exalt the name of Yeshua the Messiah and sing his praises, fellowship with one another and draw strength to continue to serve you. Lord, would you open our hearts? Would you take us into sensitive areas? Would, would you cause us to consider things today that maybe we have not considered before? And Father, for those who desperately need to hear your voice, somehow, in some way, through the preaching and teaching of your word today, would you speak a word of healing, of hope, of help, of courage to those who need it? To your glory, we will ask for these things. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Now, the role of the story of Thomas can only be studied in one of the four Gospels. You say, well, why, why just one? Because in the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke, the only reference you have to J Thomas is when the disciples' names are listed. I mean, that's it. That's all Thomas gets. Oh, yeah, and there was Thomas, uh, who was called Didymus, who was a twin. I mean, if you were to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would think Thomas was just kind of a also-ran. I mean, let's face it. He's no Peter, 
James and John, right? I mean, if, if, if all you had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you just wouldn't really understand how significant this man's life really is. But that all changes dramatically when we get to the Gospel of John. Now, before we can even get to the narrative of Thomas, we've got to take a look at this integrated revelation system of John's gospel. And there's a few things I want you to know about it. The first is, and this is a passionate belief that I hold, is that John writes as a Hebrew prophet. Now, all of the writers of the New Testament are inspired. They have the Holy Spirit, the prophetic word within them. But John constructs by the divine inspiration of, script, of the Lord, he constructs his gospel differently than the other three. And I am convinced it is because it is a prophecy. It is to be read as a prophecy. John's gospel has one central focus, and it's this, the focus is faith and belief. The Greek word for belief that is used it is used over 100 times in John's gospel. I want you to understand something. That's almost half the number of times the Greek word pistuo for faith is used in all of the New Testament. That's a lot. I mean, you just can't miss how significant this topic is as John is writing his gospel. This Greek word that is going to come up in his gospel, pistuo for faith, is also the word that in the Greek Septuagint, the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the word that is often used to translate emuna for faith or faithfulness. Now, there's something you need to know about the structure of John's gospel is also very unique. It is the presentation of seven signs. The first half, the, the book can be divided into two, and the first half of the book deals with seven signs by Yeshua the Messiah with an emphasis on how those signs are perceived and received and focusing on whether or not they are believed. John's gospel, as I say, can be divided into two parts. The second part of John's gospel will focus on the final seven days leading to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection at Passover. So to understand how Tom, the Thomas narrative is used in John's gospel, we're going to have to do a little bit of an overview of the flow of John's writing. So I hope you have your Bibles here. And if you don't, get them out on your lap. This is the one time you can look at your telephone while you're in church. It's okay. Go ahead and open up. I want you to do that because I want you to follow along. And I just didn't get, you know, things done to put them up there for you. So let's, let's just get a try to understand how this works. John begins his gospel in John chapter 1 with a clear description of the role of the one true God in the creation of life, just like Genesis. Genesis starts with a declaration, so does John. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, uh, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness, please hear this, the darkness did not, some of your translations may say receive it, some, a better translation is they did not grasp it. 
Now here's what I call the beauty of Japheth. The beauty of Japheth is my term for when God is using the beauty and the power of the Greek language to tell a story. Remember, these guys are all speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. They're not, they're not you know, running around talking in Greek. But by God's providence, when the story is to be passed on to us, he chooses the Greek language to do so and adds another layer of beauty and inspiration to the story. And I hope that you'll see that as we see how this gospel comes to us. The first thing is that notice that John is doing exactly what almost every other Hebrew writer in the New Testament does. He is creating a juxtaposition of two things, two things that are going to be compared. What are those things? Notice the phrase, the darkness did not grasp it or receive it. The Greek word there is kata lambano. And like a lot of Greek words, they're made up of a preposition, kata, and then the verb lambano. And so the preposition kata has this idea of bringing something down or being the opposite of something. Now, that's very significant. What does lambano mean? Lambano means to take hold of aggressively. So kata lambano is literally the refusing to take hold of something. It's the opposite of taking hold of something. So let's read in verse 6. A man came, sent from God, and his name was Yochanan, John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. I mean, right away, John goes right to the focus of what he wants to talk about. It's the issue of believing. His first reference, and this is his first reference to the role of John the Baptist as that witness to the light. And this is also John's first use of pistuo, this word for believe. And you may be thinking, ah, now I see the juxtaposition. Well, kind of. Because there's actually two juxtapositions we're going to talk about today. It's not just belief and disbelief. It's a type of belief that John is going to bring out in the telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to use words to amplify what God is really looking for in our lives. Look at verse 2. This was the true light that came into the world uh, that enlightens every, excuse me, verse 9, that enlightens every person. He was in the world and the world came into being through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and look at this verse and his own did not accept it, accept him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Wow, now the beauty of Japheth just kicks in. Verse 10, his own did not receive him. All right? The darkness, katalambano, the opposite of receiving, take hold. They couldn't receive it. Now, the Bible uses a term that they did not paralambano. What does that word mean? Well, the, the preposition para means to come alongside with, to take hold of, to be with. So the definition of paralambano is to personally, aggressively take hold of something. Now we understand what the juxtaposition is not just between belief and disbelief. It's a deeper meaning to that. It's a difference in the kind of belief. 
Because there are people who say they believe and there are people who take hold. And there's a huge difference. Verse 12, but as many as received him, this is another form of the Greek word lambano, again, to aggressively take hold. These are the ones, the ones who aggressively, personally, intimately took hold of the truth. These are the ones who became the children of God. Man, this is getting good. For the next 12 chapters, we're going to see Jesus performing seven signs intended to reveal who he is so that people may believe. And then we see the rejection of those signs and the intentional disbelief of those who were his own. It's kind of an amazing thing that one of the apologetic proofs that Yeshua was the Messiah isn't just that he was accepted, but that he was rejected. You may think, well, that's kind of weird, right? Because there's been a lot of false Jewish messiahs, but this scenario is different. Now, things reach a negative turning point in John chapter 6 after Jesus has fed the 5,000, and he engages in a teaching that emphasizes and amplifies the direct connection to the intimate connection between him and those who would truly believe him and receive him. After using some graphic description of eating his flesh and drinking his blood as an illustration of fully receiving him, and I want you to think about that. You know, Jesus starts saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. I mean, that is not passive belief, is it? I mean, the, the, the illustration has to do with the consumption of the Messiah. I mean, that is a real connection. And by the way, even in some of the ancient Jewish writings, they talk about how the Messiah would have to be consumed, embraced. But this was that kind of intimate picture of relationship with him was just too much. So in John chapter 6, verse 66, it says that many turned and followed him no more. Those who were just up here in the belief saying, oh, we're enjoying the signs, we're enjoying the miracles, but we're not willing to take hold, we're not willing to take that next step into genuine faith and genuine belief to aggressively take hold and make it mine. Yeah, they said that's too much. And they turned and followed him no more. These were those who would not paralambano. They would not receive him. It gets even worse in John chapter 10 when Jesus is in Jerusalem at the temple at the feast of Hanukkah. Jesus' teaching provokes the religious leadership so much that they take up stones to kill him. John chapter 10 beginning in verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication or Hanukkah took place in Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews surrounded him and began saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the anointed would tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and get this, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And listen to this, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Folks, let me just stop right there. No word is random or pointless in the word of God. Amen? Pay attention to what we're reading. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Wow. Jesus says to those, says to them, believe in me. Now, what kind of belief is he looking for? The aggressive, personal, active, taking hold of him. And notice what he says. If you take hold of him, you will never let, be let go of by God. Now we see that, this is crazy, now we see the image of this kind of faith that we're talking about, taking hold aggressively and active and personally, and now that which he wants us to do, he says, this is how God takes hold of you. Yeshua is looking uh, the, the belief Yeshua is looking for in us is now being used as the example of faithfulness God has for us. What does he say? No one will able, be able to snatch you from my hand. Why? Because I've laid hold of you. Do you see that, that John is laying this out so that we understand that the type of faith and belief that he's talking about is not casually sitting back and going, yeah, I think that's probably accurate. I think that's a historical fact. Do you want God's love? Oh, forgive me. Do you want God's love to be as shallow as our faith? I don't. I don't want him to stand back and go, yeah, okay, you know, probably be a good idea to forgive Brent. Might be a good idea to love him. Seem, I mean, on, on, on the books, it seems like, no, I want him to take hold of me and never let go. Because that's what faithfulness looks like. And what the faithfulness of God looks like to me is the faithfulness that God wants from me. That's what John is laying out. Notice that when Jesus says this incredible statement, I and the Father are one, it's immediately after he has declared that God will not let go of those who have taken hold of his son. Then Jesus says, I and the Father are one, meaning, like my Father, I will not let go of those who have taken hold of me. Earlier in John chapter 6, verse 39, he says, of all that the Father has given me, I lose none. Again, may I paraphrase, I don't let go of what God has put in my hand to keep. Wow. Back to John chapter 10. Things continue to heat up. Because Jesus said this, John goes on to record that the Jews picked up stones to kill Jesus. And he asked them, for which of the signs he had performed was he being stoned? And they answered him, it's not because of the signs, but because you make yourself out to be God. I've said it before in this place and from this pulpit. It's funny that the people who didn't believe in him had the most clarity about what he was actually saying. They didn't interpret I and the Father as one as, well, we're kind of in agreement. They interpreted what he said to mean he is the Son of God, he's God. Funny how those who don't believe understand exactly what he said, while those of us who claim to believe won't take hold of the truth. Listen to what he says in John chapter 10, verse 37 through 42. He says, if, if I do not do the works of my father, don't believe in me. But if I do them, 
Even though you do not believe in me, at least believe in the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to arrest him and he eluded their grasp and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place key in. Remember, this is a integrated revelation system where every point, every word, every detail, every location matters. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And he stayed there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Where? In the very place where John bore testimony. Behold the Son of God who takes, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's where Jesus went. He went to the place where he would be believed. Could you just hang that on a hook for a few minutes? I love what Jesus says. He says, even if you don't believe me, what I'm saying, at least believe in what God is doing. Because no man could do what he was doing if it was not God. He's basically saying, don't, if you don't believe me, at least believe God. Because if you say that a man can do these things, aren't you kind of saying that the man is equal to God anyway? If Jesus can walk on water, which God says in Job only God can do, if Jesus can raise the dead, which only God can do, by being unwilling to admit that he is the son of God, you're kind of admitting that he's, he's equal to God. They're guilty. If, if Jesus is guilty, so are they. Because otherwise, how do you explain all of these signs? Are you going to ascribe them to some other power in the universe? Are you going to ascribe them to a man? So he says, look... If you don't believe what I'm saying, at least believe the testimony. If you don't believe what I'm saying, at least believe the testimony of what God is doing. Because if you don't believe that, you're saying there's some other power in the universe that can do the same things as God. Come on, are you with me? Man, they're backing themselves into a corner. And again, notice where Jesus goes. He goes to the place where John had been baptizing, to the place where people were turning in belief and, and, and confession and trusting in God. But here's where the role of John the Baptist comes to an end in the integrated message of the Gospel of John. Chapter 11 tells the story of the final sign, the seventh sign, the raising of of Lazarus from the dead and, the, and shifts the story from the role of John the Baptist and the seven signs and now we come to the first reference to the next person that John will use as God's witness. John chapter 11, verse 11. Then he said, and after this he said to them, or this he said, and after this he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going that I may awaken him from the sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will, he will come out of it. He will be restored. 
Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking about actual sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may what? Believe. But let's go to him. And then our first reference to Thomas. Therefore, Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Wow. Talk about an introduction. I mean, this is amazing. First of all, just, just know that, as I've already said, Thomas and Didymus both mean twin. For some reason, he has called this. I suspect it was to differentiate him from another disciple. Uh, Thomas probably isn't his actual name, but he, his actual given name was a name that was also shared by one of the other apostles, and so they gave him the nickname Thomas. Didymus also means twin in Aramaic. But just as John was inspired to focus and amplify the testimony of John the Baptist to the light, now the story is going to shift to Thomas, and he will be the key player in unfolding the second half of John's gospel as it moves into these final seven days of Christ's life and ministry. Now remember, Thomas knows what's happened in Han at Hanukkah just a few months prior. He is well aware that the leadership of the Jews is now fully vested in one solution to the Jesus problem. Kill him or get him killed. That's the plan. And yet this man, so revered in the Eastern churches and so besmirched in the Western churches, has the spiritual fortitude to declare, if we must die with him, then let's go to Jerusalem and let's die with him. Now, as a man, that, that kind of fires me up. You know, I, I once used the story of Esther to get a football team fired up. If I perish, I perish. I mean, that kind of that just goes to that whole warrior thing in me, that whole, you know, stand and fight. Now, there are some people, I'm sure, who think, well, you know, maybe he's just being fatalistic. I don't care. He said it. And the Holy Spirit knew you needed to know that he said it. Let us go that we may die with him. That is aggressively active and personally taking hold of Jesus. Jesus told us to take up our cross daily, to die to our self-will. And yet many of us, including moi, have trouble being willing to even lay down our own selfish wills. It's just hard for us to get past the me, me, me syndrome, let alone the idea of actually being willing to lay down my life. But Thomas was willing to go and lay down with his life with Jesus. And for whatever reason he said it, it was Thomas who said it. John goes on to record in chapter 11 that many came to believe in Jesus because of the raising of Lazarus, but the religious leaders literally doubled down on their plot to kill him, even acknowledging all of the signs he had performed and wanting to kill him anyway. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 
They did the opposite, kata. They doubled down on disbelief because, and because of this, Jesus withdrew again from their disbelief. Now, I'm, I'm going to say something, and then I'm just going to kind of let it sit there for a while, and you can chew on it. But the first time he left because of disbelief, he went to a place of belief. Amen? Verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the region of the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. I'll just leave that there for now. The next reference to Thomas occurs in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you because I, because I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I am coming again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. In this second reference to Thomas, Thomas asked a question. Lord, how do we know the way? Now, notice how the stage is set. Jesus has said that he is personally going somewhere to do something. And Thomas' question repeats the emphasis about where Jesus is going. What does Thomas want to know? How can I be where Jesus is? How do I follow where Yeshua goes? You may slide him for the question, but Yeshua doesn't. Because it's a providential setup. Thomas is being used. Listen, all that baptizing, do you remember what the Bible says that when John the Baptist, that he came baptizing and one of the specific reasons was that in that context, the Messiah would be revealed. John the Baptist teed up that, the spirit teed up that moment for John to, to say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now Thomas, oh poor, oh pathetic doubting Thomas is being used by God, used by the master to set up this moment. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you want to go where I'm going, which is to the Father, you have to come by me and with me. This is not passive. Are you with me? Not at me. You understand? This is not passive belief. Yeah, it sounds good. Sings well, man. You can get some great songs out of that. This is about passionately taking hold. Wanting to be with the master. Gosh, it's amazing how we slight this man for a moment of not understanding when we spend our whole lives trying to understand. Yet one time he needs a little help, and what do we do? We pile on as if, if we had been there, we would have put it all together, we would have tracked perfectly with the trajectory of what Jesus was telling them. But poor Thomas just, oh, he just didn't get it, but I would have. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. And I like the fact Thomas wants to know. 
which is a lot more than you can say for the Pharisees. Thomas wants to go where Jesus is going. Forgive me, church, which is a lot more than you can say for many who claim to believe. Thomas is now serving as the example of the one disciple whom the Lord is going to use to lead us to a paralambano type of faith and belief. On the first day of the kingdom, we may need to spend some time apologizing to a couple of disciples. The first one would be Peter whom we continually frame, preachers continually frame, as this impetuous wreck whose foot is always in his mouth. Yet I want you to think about something. <laughs> of all the generations of human beings and men that were going to be born, that G God could have sent Jesus into, that he could have come, and of all the people on the planet, he cho chose Peter, not you, not me, to be the head of the apostles of the Lamb. We might want to back our train up a little bit because I happen to believe in the literal resurrection and that means one day we're going to get to see Peter and I, I don't want to have to walk up to him and say, okay, that one time I just kind of got carried away with myself. I'm so sorry. But as soon as we get done apologizing to him, we might need to go find Thomas and apologize for being so focused on what he got wrong that we forgot to see the providential, powerful way that Yeshua was using his journey to inform my own. He was handpicked by the master to be one of the 12 chosen apostles of Lamb. His name, not mine, it will be engraved on one of the foundation stones of the kingdom. In that moment, Jesus answered Thomas and every other person who had come after him with those powerful words, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And that, my friends, is the truth that many refuse to paralambano. We want to find every other way we can, even around Jesus, to get to the Father. Uh, there was a season within the, gen the Messianic movement, the Hebrew Roots movement, where Jesus just got thrown in the back seat. Folks, if being Messianic is about dancing in circles on Saturday and not about declaring that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and no one comes to the Father except through him, I'm out. Amen? I'm out. I love Saturday church. I love Sunday church. I love church because I love God's people. But what I don't love about me and sometimes those I fellowship with is how easily we can be distracted and try to lay hold of and just invest ourselves in the pursuit of every other thing but him.
when he is the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 20, verses 24 through 28, we get four more references to Thomas. Beginning in verse 19, now when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were together due to the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Please notice that he did that showing for all of them. Verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12, who was called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Let me tell you something about Thomas. Thomas may have had his doubts, but he was one decisive dude. Listen, this is where I'm at, and this is where where I'm telling you. I'm glad you guys had your experience with Jesus, but until I see it, I will not take hold of it until it's mine. Now, I'm not trying to spin his doubt into something positive, but there is a little bit of the decisiveness of Thomas that I really like. Okay, guys, that's great. That's amazing. He showed it to you. I want him to show it to me. I want it to be mine. There's a lot of people in the body of Messiah in all of its flavors who are satisfied with it being their parents or their group or their culture. Thomas says... I want it to be mine. That's Paralambano. Verse 26, eight days later. <laughs> can you, I mean, come on, this story is kind of funny. Can you imagine listening to your friends for eight days? It was amazing. You should have been there. I mean, this was like the worst FOMO moment in the history of FOMO moments. You know what that means? Fear of missing out? Thomas missed out. This is a terrible joke, but maybe they called him Didymus because he walked in and said, did I miss him? Thomas, I'm so sorry. I mean, talk about missing out. Eight days later, he has to listen to this. But eight days later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace to you. And notice how fast he turns to Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, place your finger here and see my hands and take your hand and put it in my side and do not continue in disbelief, but be a believer. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas answered him and said to him, my Lord, my Lord and my God. And Yeshua said to him, because you have seen me, You have now believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's literally defining the ministry that all of those apostles, one generation of men will have. That first hand in the flesh walking with the master. 
And the rest of us will have to make a choice about whether we believe the testimony of John or we, and we receive the evidence of Scripture. Surely by now you can see what John is doing with the story of Thomas. Thomas, by providential design, isn't there when Jesus first appears to them because he's setting the stage for showing us the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for. And the purpose isn't to demean Thomas or to degrade Thomas or to label Thomas, but to use Thomas to help us understand the type of faith that he's looking for. And when Thomas has his evidence, and this is why I like him, because when Thomas has the evidence, he stops looking for more and says, my Lord and my God, I'm all in. He doesn't spend the rest of his life saying, well, Lord... And then we judge this guy. Lord, you know, if you really love me, you know that job I applied for, that would really be the evidence of your love, Lord. Lord, if you would let that relative live, then, then I would believe. You know the crazy thing about the difference between the signs Thomas wanted and the sign we want ours are 100% selfish do more but every year we sing da da yenu da da yenu and we don't get it because the cross and the empty tomb was more than enough I'm sorry Thomas for the way we've treated you and framed you as a failure. Take hold of me, Thomas. Cure your doubt and unbelief by taking hold of me. That's Paralambano. Serving, Tanya and I served not far from here with a campus ministry years ago called Christ on Campus. And there was a week, I don't know, it was a spiritual emphasis week, I don't know what they called it, Jesus Week or something, where a lot of the campus ministries held extra events. And so we advertised one where I would be doing a teaching and I was going to kind of be teaching from some Hebraic backgrounds on a text. And so the thing that we sent out and posted kind of, you know, teased that and hinted about that. And there was a young man who came to that session. There weren't very many, but there was one young man who came and he was an American of Indian descent, not Native American descent, but India Indian descent. Because of that meeting and because of his interest in the things that I shared, uh, he went back to the leaders of his particular denomination, the Syrian Orthodox Church. This is an Eastern church that is anchored in India. And we got to go down to a retreat, I think it was down at Lake Texoma, where I got to share with these India Indian believers from Texas and Kansas and Oklahoma. The other name of their denomination 
is Mar Toma. Toma is how you pronounce Thomas. And I had the privilege of opening the Word of God to young men and women who were direct spiritual descendants of the ministry of Thomas called Didymus. Because the tradition is, and there's two traditions that I think are absolutely true about Thomas. Thomas is the one who took the gospel to India and to Parthia. And the other one is that he made good on his promise to die with Jesus. Because there in India, he died as a martyr. I wonder how many descendants, spiritual descendants, I will have because I chose to take hold of the master. The last reference to John, or to Thomas, <laughs> Are you ready for this? The seventh and final reference to Thomas. Remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke? He's only listed in eighth place, sixth in one of them in the listings. After these things, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, who was called Didymus. <laughs> wow. He went from eighth to second. It wasn't Peter, James, and John. It was Peter and Thomas. Why does the scripture do that? Because this is also the moment that Jesus is going to restore Peter and make sure we see him not as a failure, but as a faithful disciple and apostle of Jesus. And it is also the moment for us to see that Thomas may have had his moments with doubt, but when he was finally convinced, he became so decisive in his faith that he led millions and millions to Jesus Christ. So what kind of belief do you have today? I hope you will take hold of the one who has taken hold of you. Amen.